Greetings, listeners, if any, and welcome to DM Dad, the podcast about playing Dungeons and Dragons and other role-playing games with kids. A great way to spend time with your family, now that your friends are too old and have all moved away. I know what boys like, I know what guys want, I know what boys like, boys like, boys like me. That's uh, probably the most famous song by The Waitresses, the uh, 1980s post-punk band. Um, To be fair, it's probably kind of an underrated song. I think most people make the mistake of taking it at face value. It's actually a satire on uh the male gaze and on uh sexual romantic relations between men and women um is a lot more intelligent and more uh scathingly satirical than a lot of people give it credit for and also um the band the waitresses are actually a lot more talented than uh people uh normally um give them credit for But why am I talking about the waitresses? Um, That's because today's Christmas carol comes from the waitresses. Um, It is the other famous song by the waitresses, or at least according to Wikipedia it is. Um, I, to be honest, never heard it in my life until like two years ago. And um, to be honest, I, I, uh, I heard it at a Christmas fair over the PA and I thought it might actually be by the Human League, like some bizarre song where they let the uh, female vocalists do all the vocals. Um, and uh, I had to look it up later and find out my mistake. Um, it is probably my third favorite Christmas song in the world ever. It kind of continues a theme from my last podcast about... Uh, Christmas realism and about, you know, understanding that um, Christmas isn't about being happy all the time. Um, this one is less, I mean, the, it's less comic. In fact, it's, I don't think it's comic at all. Um, and it's not depressing, but it is about somebody who's just finding the whole preparation and stuff a bit overwhelming, you know, Um, they just don't, they just don't have the time. So they're, they're, they're going to spend Christmas alone and just take the time to chill out rather than, you know, get involved in all the, the hoopla and stuff. And it has a happy ending, um, as well. So it, it is in the long run an upbeat Christmas song, but you know, as, as Lois Griffin famously said on, uh, an episode of, uh, Family Guy, you know, you all think Christmas just happened, that it just falls out of the sky. Well, it falls out of my holly jolly butt. Like when you're a grown up and it's your holly jolly butt that Christmas has to fall out from, um, then the hustle and bustle and the frantic preparations and stuff of Christmas can be, um, they can seem like more of a blessing than a curse. So I can really relate to, uh, the the speaker of this uh of this song just tired of running around trying to sort stuff out and things and just you know 
I'm just going to chill out and spend Christmas by myself this year. So here is Christmas wrapping, which I assume is a pun on R-A-P-P-I-N-G, wrapping, by the waitresses. Days, evergreen, sparkling snow. Get this winter over with. Flash.
So as I've been doing um, these more frequent uh, D and December podcasts, uh, I've managed to accumulate quite a lot of uh, voicemails. Um, I wanted to throw some in in the last one, but I was uh, I was running long. Um, I'm, I am trying to keep these uh, shorter, at least under an hour. So uh, I decided that I would uh, just cram them all into the next episode and then use whatever time I had left over to discuss an actual topic. So let's start answering these voicemails. Hey, Dr. Groves, it's Rich from Cockatrice Nuggets. So uh, totally unrelated to gaming, but you mentioned X-Files and how you like the monster of the week, but not the mythology because it kind of didn't go anywhere. Was wondering, did you ever watch Fringe? If not, you really should. I enjoyed the heck out of it. And um, I think the monster of the week and the mythology both made it um, a great show. So, hey, if you haven't, check it out. Thanks for that, Rich. Um, no, I never did watch The Fringe. In fact, uh, I never um, even heard of it, and I had to look it up after your voicemail. Um, and it, I can't believe I haven't heard of it. It looks really interesting. So I will have to uh, put that on my, uh, my to-watch list and check that out. Um, I do note that it is not available on Netflix, and I'm a Netflix subscriber so that could present a problem because um, I'm not uh, I'm not keen on uh, having multiple streaming subscriptions. Um, there are times when I struggle to even make pro- uh, proper use of my Netflix subscription, um, and then you you know you feel like you're paying for it for nothing. Um, so I'll have to look into the options for checking that out. But it definitely looks like it would be up my street, um, especially if. Uh, if both aspects of the show, mythology and monster of the week, are 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 done well, so thanks for that suggestion. Hi, Robert. It's Colin Spike Pit. Just listening to your Black Hack episode. It went under the radar for me. Not sure why. I picked up second edition Black Hack, and I'm in the process of going through it. But you mention a game system where the um, criticals damage the armor, and you get wear and tear on fumbles. I believe you'll find that is Knave by Ben Milton. You've probably read that, mate. Uh, Unless there's another one. But I'm guessing you've worked it out by now. Cheers, then. Great episode. Catch you later. Thanks for that, Colin. Um, You are absolutely correct. It is Knave. And in fact, I, I actually remembered it after I posted the episode. I just couldn't for the life of me remember remember it at the time. Um I I've read Nave. Um I haven't had a chance to run it yet. Um and I'm I'm kinda planning to make a kind of Nave Maze Rats hybrid. Um because there are aspects of both games that I like. But I mean one thing I really one thing I really missed about Nave was the uh, the absence of the, all the random tables that you get in Maze Rats. Um, I don't think I could do without those. Um, as for the black hack going under your radar, yeah. So I recorded a really long review of the black hack. And I published it. And it just sat there doing nothing. Um, like zero listens. And I left it for a little while. 
just thinking, oh, maybe people are too busy to listen or something, or, you know, they'll get to it. But after a few days, it's like, well, I'm sure I should at least have it like single digits of listens. Um, and I noticed, for instance, I follow myself on Spotify, and I can use that to, to make sure that um, the episodes have been uploaded to the multiple platforms because it was showing up on Anchor, but it didn't show up on Spotify. And and the the first of my D in December podcasts showed up on Spotify, so it skipped the black hacks. So I said, well, there must be a problem with the episode. But the only thing I could think of was that it was slightly longer than my longest episodes. So I cut one segment um, a segment where I talked about some of my uh, woes with the Anchor app. Um, and it was still over an hour. But as soon as I cut that segment and then saved it, you know, um, it it appeared magically everywhere. And you know, now people have had access to it. So that will be why it flew under your radar is that for a while after I published it, it was not being uploaded there must be some kind of uh, episode time limit that we're not aware of or that hasn't been widely published. If anybody actually knows what that time limit is and where it's stated that you can't have an episode longer than, a, am going to guess, an hour and 15 minutes, um, maybe phone in and, and, and tell me where I can find that fine print. I mean, to be fair, we probably should try to keep our episodes under an hour but anyways, that will be the explanation for that. And that's also why I'm putting all the call-ins in this episode. Hey, this is Ray Otis from Plundergrounds, and I, for one, have really been enjoying your musical treatises, tirades. Uh, I'm not sure what you call them, but uh, they are educating and enlightening and interesting. I especially like this last one about Judy Garland. You did a masterful job of summarizing the plot of Meet Me in St. Louis, which I had not seen before. And uh, I will say, though, that even not knowing that story, I've always had the Judy Garland version in my playlist and preferred it, even though it's uh, slow and sad in a way. And I've always gotten that exact emotion out of it that I now know why I get that emotion, but it was always there even before I knew the story. Now I know the story, which makes it even better. But uh, that just shows you how amazing of a singer Judy Garland is when, when she puts that, she can get that emotion across through the song. It's not just singing the words, it's, it's singing the meaning. So love it. Thank you. Thanks for that, Ray. And it's, uh, it's good to hear some feedback on the music because it is weird. And it, it is only for this month. So if any of you uh, uh, aren't cool with it, don't think that this is going to be my new thing. Um, I do feel a little bit like Patrick Bateman, like putting these songs in there and then rambling on about them and stuff like that. Like, am I, am I losing touch with reality here? But and I totally agree. There, there's, there, there's really nobody like Judy Garland. There's a lot of people in the world of musical theater who can act fine and sing fine, but they can't act and sing at the same time. It's like they're two different skills and they have to switch between them. And, uh, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that, you know, even uh, the famous Let It Go from Frozen, the power of that song is from the song itself, but uh, she's not actually acting the emotion. I've heard people do... Uh, a rendition of a musical a song in a musical that is closer to the emotion of the character where really she's just belting out a, a good song and that's also why that song works as a single because you don't have to be watching the film to get it 
I'm not actually a huge fan of musicals, to be honest. There's probably like five musicals that I like, and one of them is the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So uh, that probably gives you an idea of uh, where my tastes lie. Um, but yeah, we uh, we do watch uh, Meet Me in St. Louis every Christmas, even though it is technically not a Christmas film, because it has that iconic scene um, with that iconic Christmas song. Um, and it has a lot of humor in it and everything. It's... um. And as a part of musical or a Hollywood history, it's the film where um, Judy Garland and uh, Vincente Minnelli met and fell in love. And, uh, you know, that union produced Liza Minnelli. Um, and apparently they're the only family in the history of Hollywood where mother, father, and daughter have all won Oscars. So there's a bit of trivia for today. Hey man, Eric Salzwittle of the Omega 3D Chicken Coop calling in, and I'm calling in regards to your D&D December topic of clerics and warlocks, and there's a part of it where I definitely agree with you on, and that is the fact that the warlock class seems pretty unnecessary to me. I've always envisioned warlocks as evil wizards that happen to commune with demons or evil deities of that nature. I do like the idea and think it's definitely doable with having the warlock essentially be the evil cleric that just doesn't know healing spells, which also works in my opinion. Uh, The one area where I will disagree with you on is I'm one of those people that actually like to play the hybrid characters that aren't very good at fighting or magic but have a broader character skill base or ability base. I like to have utility type characters that in any given situation can add to the adventure in some way. Anyway, those are just my opinions, man. Keep it up. I'm enjoying the rapid-fire December episodes. Uh, thanks for that, Eric. Um, it's. It, I, I think I haven't. I hadn't actually considered like you know multi-classing, dual-classing, and other hybridized characters from the utilitarian perspective before. I think I've always just uh, perceived it as a min-maxing thing. Um, so that's a that's a, an interesting way to look at it. Um, I personally, I, I try to play utilitarian characters myself. It's kind of my favorite role. Um, it's sort of like, you know, like being in a band. Um, you know, everybody wants to be the lead guitarist or the lead singer, but your band's going to sound pretty dorky if you don't have a bass player. And I actually do play bass guitar. It was my first instrument. So um, that's kind of the role. It's like nobody's going to think to be the bass player and you're going to need one. Um, but I've always kind of done that as either like I play the cleric or I play the thief, but I play, I play a thief as utility and skills, not as stealing crap from the party. Um, but I hadn't thought about how that, you know, multi-class characters who can do a little bit of more than one thing or a little bit of everything are actually good utility players. Um, I guess, I guess I was just too focused on the stereotype, especially of things like bards and stuff that, you know, um, that people who are attracted to bards, to the bard class are, uh, are trying to be, uh, what Canadians would call shit disturbers. So, but it, it kind of makes me want to maybe try some of this out next time. I, uh, next time I'm rolling up a character to try, uh, a multi-class character, for utility reasons rather than, you know, to try to have my cake and eat it too. So, uh, so thanks for that. 
Hey man, how's it going? Eric Salzwittle here of the Omega 3D Chicken Coop. I'm just calling in in regards to your most recent player skills episode, and I totally agree with you. I was a uh, heavy 3.5 player. It was the only thing people were playing at the time, so I played it. And uh, very similar to Pathfinder, as you noted, and that's, that is ex- absolutely correct. The player skill in a 3.5 derivative game is based on your ability to create a character and then apply the rules within the game to give yourself advantageous bonuses during combat or other non-combat related situations. And just like you said, playing an old school style or classic gaming style game, it is definitely more about your ability to think and apply your character to the best of your ability and work around your disadvantages. Anyway, man, great episode. Keep it up. Hey, Robert. Frank T. here. Frank T.'s Liner Notes. Just listening to your recent anchor cast about player skills. And until you brought it up, I never realized the sort of inverse relationship there between older style games and the players having skills during the game versus uh, Pathfinder style games where the player skill actually lies before the game is played. Um, Great stuff. Keep up the good work. Looking forward to hearing more. So that was a couple of call-ins on the uh, the skills episode. Um, Eric Selzweedle again and uh, Frank T. Um, I'm I'm really glad that that episode went off well um, because <clears throat> as I as I mentioned in the episode, I I had been thinking about doing it as a blog post for a long time, and and I I mean I even had drafts of it. I felt like I never got the wording right or it was too long and I was worried people wouldn't quite understand what I was trying to say. And um, so, but I, you know, I decided I'm just going to shoot my mouth off about it here on my podcast. And uh, I'm glad to see that, that it went down, it went down well. Um, Cause it's, it's a thing like it's very easy in, uh, in the different factions and contingencies of uh, role-playing to fall into, uh, well, one style's good and one style's bad. I mean, my, my early, one of my earliest experiences with the OSR was um, I joined some uh, Facebook groups devoted to uh, AD&D. Uh, one was a, a first edition group and one was a second edition group. And uh, I joined them both because I liked them both. You know, I know some people hate second edition AD&D. I kind of feel like second edition AD&D is like the return of the Jedi of D&D editions. It's the one that everybody hated until fourth edition came out. Just like everybody hated um, return of the Jedi because of the Ewoks. Having no idea that they were someday going to experience Jar Jar Binks. But I, I, I think... Second edition AD&D is a good game, and I would happily play it or run it. Um, but when I joined both of those groups, I, what I expected is that people would talk about what they liked about the game and the system. And instead, they spent most of their time complaining about how their kids were playing 5th edition. Um, although, weirdly, the thing they hated most of all, both groups, was each other. Um people complained endlessly about second edition AD&D in the first edition group 
and endlessly about first edition AD&D and the second edition group. It's kind of like the scene in Life of Brian where, you know, the only thing we hate more than the Romans is the fucking Judean people's front. It's like, hmm, okay. Um, so yeah, I was, I was, I was, um, I was really worried that, or the, or the thing that, um, inspired me to do this episode about the different type of player skills is that it isn't a one's good, one's bad thing. They're different and they use different skill sets. And probably the most you can say is that you prefer one to the other. I definitely prefer one to the other, but I also recognize that I don't really have the skill set to make the best use of the style that uh, that isn't my preferred style. So, believe it or not, um, I don't set out to make hour-long podcasts. I never sit down and go, I'm going to talk for an hour and a bit about this damn, this or that damn thing. It, it just happens. And I really was uh, hoping to make this one shorter. Um... I was even actually going to just basically do a call-ins only, just play the call-ins and a quick response to them um, to keep the, to keep the running time down because I know not everybody has hours and hours to listen to podcasts. And also because I couldn't decide on another topic, like a, a specific topic for this, uh, this episode. Um, but then that changed when I got, uh, this call in, uh, which I received just this morning. Hey, Dr. Graves, it's Rich from Cockatrice Nuggets. Yeah. So ever since you started doing these, uh, um, Christmas carols and I'm a couple episodes behind, mind you, I've been thinking about uh, bad religion in my head and boom, there it is. Third one, I think third one, uh, third one. Yeah. Bad religion. All right. So, uh, yeah, I saw these guys in concert and, uh, it was, uh, a holiday show put on by a local radio station and they were like, Hey, so I think the only reason they invited us here is because they wanted to hear Bad Religion sing some Christmas carols. So half of their entire set was Christmas carols. It was, uh, it was an interesting show and my first real exposure to, uh, punk Christmas carols. Um, another one of my favorite genres, uh, that came from that is punk show tunes. Check out Punk Side Story, one of my faves. Take it easy. Wow, I am definitely going to check out uh, Punk Side Story. Um, that just sounds phenomenal. Um, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm probably going to go look that up on uh, Spotify immediately after recording this. Um, maybe someday in the future, <laughs> I will play some punk uh, show tunes on my podcast. Although I, I'm not sure what kind of a holiday occasion would warrant that. Uh, maybe summer vacation. I don't know. Um, but yeah, although that although that uh, that particular message has nothing to do with gaming, um, that basically that's uh, two messages uh, from Rich in one podcast, and it just put me in mind of of a couple of things. So one is that uh, Rich wrote an article on the uh, High Level Games blog about metagaming it's basically it's called five points in in favor of metagaming and i really like this article um disclaimer i already agree <laughs> with with all of the points um so it, it's not like he converted me to accepting metagaming it's like it more like preaching to the converted um but i mean if i don't know if you have strong feelings about metagaming i think you should read this article um a lot of what 
what some people call metagaming just it just doesn't bother me um first of all he makes some really good points like point one is it's a game and it's basically like look whenever whenever you refer to the game mechanics even to like making attack rolls and saving throws and things like that um when it, whenever you describe what you're doing in terms of the rules of the game rather than trying to narrate it um you are metagaming you, you're drawing attention to the fact that it's a game and not a story. Um, I think, you know, there is a way to play with absolute beginners and the DM rules all the dice, including the player's attack rules. And they say, I attack with your sword, and you roll their die in secret, and you say, unfortunately, your sword swings wide and things like that. But, you know, that's not how... That's, nobody plays like that. You know, everybody rolls their own dice. You know, whenever you invoke your feet or something like that, you're metagaming. Um, but... One of the things that I think people definitely um, complain about more is, you know, I, he uses the example going w when you're fighting a troll, going right for the fire and the acid. And, you know, if it's a first level party and they've never fought a troll, but they but the players know that trolls will regenerate unless they're hit with fire or acid. How could you know that and stuff? Personally, I would never as a as a game master, I would never call a player out on that because. I view I view D and D as a survival challenge, and I'm not going to handicap the players and and stop them doing something that will increase their chances of survival. And in a similar way, I'm not going to bar them from taking certain actions because their intelligence score isn't, you know, high enough. Even though the 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 description of the ability scores in the first booklet of the original game, Men and Magic specifically states that intelligence may prevent you from taking certain actions if it's too low. But, I mean, I would never say, well, you've only got a five intelligence, you wouldn't think of that plan. It's like, if it's a good plan and the player thought of it, that's the point of the game for me. <laughs> but one thing I particularly liked about Rich's article is that he found <clears throat> a way to justify metagaming, like in that troll example. Um... So if it basically you could if somebody really wants to make up a stink about this you could shut them up with this argument and this he basically asks um how do you kill a vampire I mean if you if you take anybody off the street and just say excuse me but uh how would you kill a vampire they will name a number of things and while all the things that you could name that might kill a vampire won't necessarily kill a D&D &D vampire. I don't think garlic is a big thing, at least not for 5th edition D vampires. Some of them definitely will kill a vampire. Vampires are harmed by running water in D&D. A stake through the heart will at least immobilize them. Um, fire, sunlight, you know, these things do affect them. And, like, we all know how to kill a vampire... And vampires aren't even real. But imagine if we lived in a world where vampires were real. You know, that knowledge would be even... That knowledge would be relevant at some point. So you're also saying, well, you live in a world where trolls are real, where dragons are real. So even if you've never met one, just think, like, how much we know about how to kill mythical creatures when they don't even exist. If they did exist, even if you didn't meet them on a regular basis, or even if you could live your whole life not meeting them, of course you would know. You would. People would be like, oh my god, it's a troll. I've heard these things are susceptible to fire and acid. 
you know, so that's, it's perfectly justifiable. Um, so yay for metagaming. Um, and, and yeah, like that doesn't bother, it doesn't bother me at all. If, if there's a bespoke monster or a monster that's unique to Dungeons and Dragons or, you know, like something that I made up or it only exists in the module and the players find some way to know how, know how to defeat it. I mean, it sort of depends because if, if it's a, if it's a matter of, they looked at the book when they weren't supposed to or something like that. Well, that's bad. That's, that's not cricket, you know? Um, but in a way they're also cheating themselves out of the experience. But if they're not cheating, I would, I, as a game master would give them some sort of clue as to what the creature is, what it does and how it to defeat it. You know, I wouldn't just hand them it, hand them the answer on a play, but there would be some clues. I mean, otherwise it's not fair, you know. For instance, in a game, the my the fifth edition game that I'm a player in, we uh, we recently encountered a gelatinous cube, and I knew it was a gelatinous cube because it was a ten by ten by ten dungeon corridor, and the DM said it's suspiciously clean. Now that's the keyword for gelatinous cube. You know, whenever whenever you find a ten by ten by ten dungeon corridor and the floors look like they've been swept and slept, swept and scrubbed clean, that means there's a gelatinous cube there. I could see by the DM's face that he was thoroughly enjoying this encounter, and I could also see by the other players' faces that they didn't get it. They didn't. They didn't know the cue. So so. I didn't spill the beans. I didn't say, oh, it's a gelatinous cube. And therefore, I didn't step into the damn corridor. And one of the other players did and was engulfed and, you know, dissolved into a, uh, nothingness, basically. And we eventually defeated the gelatinous cube, but we couldn't recover his body. So um, I scraped up the goo that remained into a uh, glass vial took it back to town and set it in the uh, the local temple so that there would be some kind of monument to our fallen comrade. But there's no chance of resurrection. And, uh, you know, you might say, well, if I had metagamed more, I might have saved his life. Um, and, and I did use my metagaming knowledge to save my own life by not going anywhere near that corridor. But... I tried to do it in game, you know, I like, uh, I, I kept trying to bring them back to, why do you think the floor is clean? And I, and I made a show of asking the DM, were there any of the other dungeon corridors clean? And he's like, no, no, they had rubble and detritus and bones and stuff like that, you know, and all the other players are like, maybe an evil wizard lives here and he's enchanted a bunch of brooms and they've been sweeping the place clean, like in Fantasia. And it's like, yeah, you know. I don't know. I did my best. Um, so, anyways, yeah. Metagaming saved my character's life, although uh, it failed to save my companions' lives. Um, to be fair, uh, my character's alignment was chaotic neutral, and... I had already lost one character to that game. In fact, of the five players at the time, three of us had lost um, characters. So if anybody ever tells you that you can't die in 5th edition, uh, just tell them that's because the DM isn't running it right. 
Um, our DM is is brutal and creative and inventive, and I mean, one of us was killed by ordinary badgers, um, which I'm now going to start putting in my games because those things are flipping fierce. But anyways, yeah, I definitely recommend you check that article out. So like once again, it is called Five Points in Favor of Metagaming, and it is on the High Level Games blog. So Google that, and I'm sure you'll find it. <laughs> also posted in some of the Facebook groups and stuff, which is actually how I spotted it in the first place. Um, and it put me in mind of another blog post that I read um, this week. Um, this is on the uh, Hex Junkie blog. So it's another blog that I follow. And uh, I was initially attracted to it because of its title, Knowledge Checks Are Stupid, um, which is a purposefully incendiary title. The author doesn't literally mean that knowledge checks are stupid, and neither do I by promoting it, but he makes some very good points about how knowledge checks can be used or misused in a lot of D20 skill check type systems. Um, the blog post itself has a very humorous opening. It opens with a dialogue between a player and a game master. The player asks, does a bear shit in the woods? The DM replies, you might know, but your character doesn't. Give me a nature check. Uh, seven. You're unsure whether bears do indeed shit in the woods. And then the uh, author uh, goes on, um to say, I wish I was being facetious, but this is a legitimate entry in the D&D 4E Monster Manual. Bears live in forests. Your character can only know that if you roll a 15, which represents moderate difficulty. And then he actually has a screenshot of the 5th edition Monster Manual. So, bear lore. A character knows the following information with a successful nature check. DC 15. Bears generally live in forests and caves. And then there's some other information. But yeah, the basic fact about where bears live is a DC-15 nature check. Now, my kids are in the next room. I imagine if I went and asked them, guys, do bears poo in the woods? They would give me the correct answer, even though they've never met a bear and they've never been to the woods. And uh, what follows then is a, a very... Uh, entertaining but informative and convincing article about how, whether you should be using skill checks, especially knowledge checks, to uh, deny knowledge to your players. Now, I've talked before about my feelings about D20 skill-based systems. Not a fan of them. Try not to use them. Knowledge checks are among my least favorite of the skill check family. Um, I, I've really, I, I, I've just grown so tired of feeling compelled to ask for a skill check every time a character has a question about something. And, you know, to bring it back to Rich Fraser's article, you know, if you live in a world where monsters are real, even if you have never seen one before, you probably have some base knowledge about at least what, what people 
generally believe about monsters so are you gonna say like what if you what if somebody decides well my character's never fought a troll but i know trolls are susceptible to fire can i do a nature check or an arcana check or some you know check to see if my if i know that and it's like well look man you just you know that you know you ask who the king is in the next country. You've probably heard of him, just like you probably know the names of, you know, famous and prominent politicians in real life. You know, you probably know some basic geography. And okay, you can argue, oh, in a medieval world, they didn't know that much about the world outside of them. And it's like, well, you know, fair enough, but somebody must know. And it's a bit, you're a well-traveled adventurer, you know. You're, you're probably a little bit above the curve in that in that respect. Um, and the article talks about the impulse to deny information and about how this is really not a good idea. Um, it's actually counterproductive for your game. And that in turn reminded me of a tweet from the pink dice GM Twitter account. I'm not a fan of Twitter, but I do follow a few gaming accounts. Um, and the Pink Dice GM has a lot of really good advice. And recently, he, or possibly she, I have no idea, tweeted that whenever you give your players information, you probably feel like you've given them too much. But keep in mind that you see the big picture, you know all the secrets. They're seeing only small pieces. So you haven't given too much away. Um, they're still going to, you know have the fun of piecing these things together, figuring out what they really mean. And, you know, this ties in with a lot of the things, a lot of the game theory that I, uh, that I buy into now, you know, the, uh, the Courtney Campbell things about, you know, you need to give your players information, otherwise they can't make an informed choice, which the hex junkie also points out that the information is necessary for them to make choices. Um, or it's it's specifically stated in the Maze Rats rule set that you should reveal the world. That's the actual phrase that Ben Milton uses. In fact, it's actually a heading, reveal the world. You know, tell your players things about the world and how it works when it becomes revel- relevant. Don't just, you know, be coy about it. You don't have to gamify knowing basic facts about their their world and their environment. And, you know, some of this denial of information does relate to what people call metagaming and knowing too much about monster weaknesses. You got to remember, though, players don't always remember every single thing just because they've run the game or read the monster manual. They won't necessarily remember any every detail. I, for one, have a hard time remembering which of the oozes are susceptible to which type of damage. And I know that there's one that splits into little oozes if you hit it with lightning. And I believe it's the black pudding, but especially in the heat of battle, I'm liable to forget that. And then I'm afraid to use either either lightning damage or slashing damage against it because I can't remember which one of them, which one will simply split into two smaller ones when they do it. Although I do remember that the flesh golem is healed by lightning. But, you know, your players will forget things like that. Or, you know, like in my earlier example, I, I clicked right away that there was a gelatinous cube. But nobody else seemed to. And 
it's not like we're all novices. You know, we've all been playing D&D. I guess just a lot of people have never actually fought a gelatinous cube before. Or they just didn't figure it out. It was too subtle a clue in the moment. And, you know, it's always harder to remember these things when you're on the spot. You know, remember that your players are seeing your world only through what you tell them. And that's like looking at everything through a small peephole, you know, whereas you have the whole thing in front of you. So... You know, for the for most things that even fifth edition would require a knowledge check, you might as well just tell them. You know, the the poor wizard making arcana checks. You're a wizard. You know about magic. Just tell them. You know, I mean, I'm not t- saying you know let them identify their uh, magic items without you know going through any rigmarole or something. But if they want to know about you know the like if there's a a country with evil wizards in it, they probably know that. I mean, remember, even the hobbits had heard of Mordor. They, you know, didn't know as much about it as Gandalf. But when people mention the name Mordor, they're like, ooh, that place is scary, let's not talk about it. Or a shudder would go through them or something. Um, And uh, I know some people like to make elaborate player's guides that have all the common knowledge and stuff like that but the last thing i need to do is is make my players take a reading test before they play my game so basically when a detail becomes relevant and they ask about it if it's common knowledge i let them know and uh that's how i that's how i communicate my world building but you know um Everyone will have their own style. I guess, like, one thing that the uh, the Hex Junkie article points out and that I would also echo is that if you're going to put a piece of knowledge on the other side of a skill check, you know, a dice roll that is possibly f- going to fail, you need to be prepared to accept both the, both outcomes, success and failure. And if that information is essential to completing the quest then you know the outcome of failure is the the quest never gets completed and the party will will have to go do something else so you obviously don't want to put anything too vital you know as the result of a skill check but then if it's not vital then what's the point of rolling for it why not just tell them Anyways, there can be any number of opinions on this, and I've rambled on uh, quite a lot. Um, I was initially reluctant to discuss this because I thought, especially after my kind of olive branch um, thing about the different types of player skills, it would seem like I'm now uh, uh, coming down on player skills. But um, then it occurred to me that this isn't really a post about playing with skills is bad. It's just that a certain type of skill check could maybe use a bit more thought. So um, anyways, yeah, I've rambled on long enough about this. We're probably coming up for an hour. So um, until next time, play well and let the dice fall where they may.